Today's scripture is taken from Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? To te- so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Delight to be with you. Last month, uh, our country was shocked because within a couple of days' time, two very famous and very successful people, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, both ended their own lives. Bourdain, chef, TV celebrity, world traveler in search of the great meal, Spade, respected New York fashion designer, jovial wife and mother, they became part of the tragic reality of increasing suicide rates in our country. And certainly, one of the big takeaways from all the media coverage that occurred was the goodness of a a greater awareness of mental health issues and depression and suicide. And that's a good thing. It's important reminder that every one of us, including people in this room, all of us are connected to someone who struggles with depression and suicide, whether we're aware of it or not. Now, As I've reflected, though, on this increased public awareness that these suicides brought, it's been interesting to note that in the midst of all of this good of highlighting mental health issues, there really hasn't been much discussion of the deeper question underneath all of it, and it's this. Why is it so hard to actually be happy? Why is it so difficult to have have and maintain in our lives, even here in America where we have a lot going for us, why is it so difficult to have a deep sense of peace or shalom or flourishing? Now, anyone who struggles 
with depression and suicidal tendencies is worthy of our attention and our support. But we tend to talk about these celebrity suicides like Bourdain and Spade naturally because they're well-known people, so they make the news. But I think we also are very fascinated by these stories more subtly because there's something else going on. These people's suicides are shocking to us because they have, they've had it made. They have money, influence, fame, beauty, power, health, all the things that should be life-giving, the things that often keep us motivated. If we could have more of those, we think. And yet these people were clearly unhappy. They experienced, <clears throat> they excuse, excuse me, they experienced life as unsatisfying and so dark that the only solution was to escape and get out. You see, depression and suicide are mental and bio-neurological problems, and we need to be addressed in these ways, but they're also more than that. They are embodied human soul problems that include neurons and chemicals, but they go beyond that to the inner person of, of who we are, that longing for happiness and flourishing that we come to a point, we can come to a point where if we, if we do not have it and don't see any hope of it, it's hard to know how to go on. Now, for me personally, I've never struggled so far in my life with suicidal thoughts. That's not because of some great virtue on my part. It's mostly a personality issue, though I have experienced some dark times and feelings of hopelessness. But as I've gotten older, I've become more aware, more and more aware of how difficult it actually is to be happy and to sustain happiness. It hasn't gotten easier as I've gotten more successful and made more money, I've actually become more aware of how difficult it is. And I ask you this morning as we begin, I mean, what about you? Are you aware of that in yourself? In fact, much of my work as a professor and a scholar in recent years has actually focused on this very question, this question of happiness and flourishing, both its history, its theology, its psychology, And I distinctly remember many times, even in the midst of studying the Sermon on the Mount and seeking to be a follower of Jesus and recognizing this, where I was stopped dead in my tracks and I'd ask myself, am I really happy? And the answer, despite having a beautiful family and health and a successful career, meaningful work to do every day, a job that gives me lots of freedom, despite all that, the answer to that question for me was often no. I realize some of you here may be resonating completely with me. Some of you may be thinking, why all this fuss about being happy? God's not into that fluffy, wimpy, feel-good stuff. He calls us to sacrifice and lay down our lives and consider others more important than ourselves. Maybe especially if your personality is more on the analytic side of things, this talking about happiness sounds too touchy-feely or something to you. But I'd like to suggest to you this morning that no matter what your upbringing, no matter what your job, no matter what your personality, everything you and I do at its core, at its root, is driven by the desire for happiness or satisfaction or shalom or flourishing. As St. Augustine says in many places, but in his famous book, The City of God, it's a certainty that all people desire to be happy. The question then, and what Augustine's reflections are at length, are how difficult it is to find this with the solution only being God. The longing for shalom or flourishing or happiness is what drives all of us, whether 
And that's true today, and it's true in the ancient world. It's underneath every religion. It's underneath every philosophy of life. It's underneath every exercise and diet plan. Damien and I were talking earlier this morning about T25, which is something I've done, and maybe some of you have as well. Desire or Decide, commit, succeed. That's a philosophy of life that's promising flourishing. The pursuit of happiness will make a person spend hours a day practicing violin or hours of day hours each day just vegged in front of the TV the pursuit of happiness will make a man leave his wife and three children give up a career or ministry to have a passionate affair with another woman and that same desire for happiness in another person can enable a man to faithfully love and care for a wife over many years of suffering through physical or mental illness what we do and we do what we do because At some core level, we think and feel that it will bring us the greatest happiness. The point is that the drive and need for flourishing is a universal human experience. And the question for us today gathered together is, does God have anything to say about this? And the answer to that is a resounding yes. And the answer is maybe not what we think. The answer is not God saying, don't care about happiness. That's selfishness. That's not religious. You should just be dutiful. That's not at all God's answer in Holy Scripture. In fact, just do a search on the word satisfaction in the Bible alone, and you will find it's all over the place, or happiness, and that God cares about these things. I would be so bold today to suggest, and it sounds like Damien has been preaching the same thing, that the idea that God cares about our whole flourishing as individuals in society, is it, I'd suggest to you that that's a pretty central theme to the Bible. And so, this morning, in light of the reality of that truth, what I want to do is turn to Holy Scripture, particularly to Psalm 90 that we just heard read, and I want to reread it and rethink about it with this question in mind. What does God have to say about our flourishing in a fallen world. I'd like to just pause and pray uh, once more that God would help us as we do. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are uh, very kind and that no matter whether we've come in tired today or energetic, um, depressed, joyful, apathetic, maybe we're dragged here by somebody else, a spouse or parents or sibling, or whether we've come with eager and open mouths and ears, God, we thank you that you're the same and that you are beautiful and good, and you are able to bring us to a place of life. And so we ask you by the Spirit to now come and speak, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we turn for a few moments together to this God-breathed poem, and that's what it is, it's a poem, it is chock full of wisdom and powerful words, more than we could handle in one message. And I'm not going to pretend to say everything that's in this, but I want us to approach this beautiful poem, this Psalm 90, with this question of happiness and flourishing. And I think it will be very illuminating. So the first, for three moves in this poem, the first one is the first couple of verses. Let me read them for you again. And if you have a, the scripture in front of you, you can follow along. Verse one, Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. 
before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, one of the reasons this psalm is so famous is because of these majestic words that begin it. This, these end up in a lot of songs and are very beautiful. And Moses appropriately starts with really a mind-staggering truth, if you let it sink in. From everlasting to everlasting, Yahweh, who we now know as the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the one who created all things, sustains all things, and is beyond what we can even perceive of as time in our very limited embodied experience. When you and I see a glorious high mountain, bigger than Mount Dora, probably you have to go out a little farther. Um, and when here, when we see the vastness of the ocean, as my family and I were again yesterday on the ocean, we are reminded um, by these amazing combinations of created matter that before all of this, even in its vastness, existed, God was, and these are just the flick of his smallest finger. Often the Bible reaches the limits of human language in contemplating God and trying to describe him. It really amazes me to think about how the psalmists who had before them mountains and the foundations of the world, how they were still amazed with God and how much more we can be amazed with God. After all, we have planet Earth, right? I mean, if you watch planet Earth, it is amazing. All the things you can see, the details that the Israelites would have never known of. Or recently I flew out to Portland in that, that long flight over the Rockies where you just see this vast panorama of mountains, more than any ancient Israelite like the psalmist could have ever been able to see from that height. Or you think satellite photos, all that vastness before any of that existed, God was and is the same. But maybe even more shocking in these first two verses, it's not just that this is a doctrine lesson in awesomeness, but it's very personal and very experiential because you see the same majestic God has stopped and stooped to have a very real relationship with his creatures. Once you're even smaller and more temporally bound than mountains, God has a relationship with. It was true in ancient Israel. It's true for every Christian over the last 2,000 years that God is a dwelling place. He's not just this distant, amazing God. He is a refuge. He's the source of life and hope and meaning. Not just the majestic, everlasting creator. He's personal. And note, not just that God has provided such a dwelling place, but he himself is this. He has always been humanity's all in all. In God alone do we have life and breath in our very being across all generations. So that's how the psalm begins. Very powerful, very engaging. And we can have a whole psalm, and some psalms are just like that. That's the whole message, and that's a great message. But this psalm makes a very important second move in the following verses. And let me read these for you again. Verses 3 to 11. It's a study in contrast. In light of all that about God, it says, And you return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but like as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and it's renewed in the evening, it fades and withers. For we're brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we're dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. 
And for all of our days pass away under your wrath and we bring our years to end like a sigh. The years of life are 70 or maybe 80 by reason of strength, 80, but their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? If verses 1 to 2 were about God's greatness and eternality, verses 3 to 11, they direct our attention to the exact opposite, and that's humanity's weakness and temporality. In fact, verse 3 hits us with the stark reality right on the nose of our own mortality, our dustness. That is, we are reminded that no matter how beautiful or powerful or wealthy or smart we are, we're made from the earth and we're going to return there. We all become dust. When we die, our organs and our skin begin to deteriorate quickly. Our bones can last quite a bit longer but even they eventually become nothing but dust. And all of this can happen at the singular instant moment of our death. The one great thing that none of us can control when we will die. It's very sobering. And did you hear the profound reflections of time in these verses? You and I, as humans, with all of our healthy food and water and exercise and medicines and surgical techniques, our lives will last maybe 70 or 80 years if we're lucky. And of course, many people live much shorter lives than that. One day, 21 years, death in their 30s, 40s, 50s, or 60s. A few of us may make it to 90, though with a lot of creaks and groans and pains. A tiny percentage may live to 100, a century plus change. But the point of this psalm is that the eternal God, who was, was and is before mountains were formed by volcanoes in Hawaii and tectonic plates in Colorado, to him, a thousand years, a millennium, ten times the longest life we might hope to have, a thousand years is like last Tuesday that you don't even really hardly remember. Or some uneventful day nine years ago that you just went through and don't remember anything about. To the eternal, self-sustaining God of the universe, the entirety of our lives, all the pain, all the anxiety, all the excitements, all the birthdays, all the money, uh, all the money earned and all the money spent, all of that, every single year, month, day, hour, minute, second, all of them together for us is like he compares it for us to like a half-remembered dream you had when you were six or 26. That's how small and insignificant it is. To the God who made and sustains the world and who never grows, sleeps or grows weary, even the longest and richest and most flourishing lives of humans, you, you fill in the blank with whom you want. The great King David, Abraham Lincoln, I guess he didn't live real long, but he had a flourishing life. Alexander the Great, St. Paul, Moses, whoever you want to put in that category, if you think had a great life, the entirety of such lives are compared to grass in your backyard from four years ago in May that you cut and bagged and composted. That grass is not something that you think about every day and has a lot of weight on your, on your life. All of this, you see, is meant to humble us as we think about the shortness and insignificance of our lives compared to God. There's even more 
going on in these verses than just that reminder. Did you notice the repeated theme in these verses that God is not just passive and observing this, but the repeated theme of God's wrath and anger? You can see it there in your, in your verses. And I'm sorry, did I read a different translation? Maybe I did. Or did I, or did I read the right translation? But you can see it there in verses 7, 8, 9, 11, this theme of God's anger. Now, lest we misunderstand these verses, I would not want you to misunderstand them. These verses are not painting, the Bible is not painting God as like this grouchy old man who's spiteful and he's throwing angry Olympian Zeus thunderbolts to show his superiority over humanity or something. The language of verses 3 to 12 is not painting, or 3 to 11, is not painting God that way. It's intentionally designed to remind us of one thing. You know what that one thing is? Genesis chapter 3. The great tragic moment in the history of the world when Adam and Eve first rebelled against their creator and king and went from a life in Eden of flourishing to a life of death and trial. Did you notice all that language in these verses that's coming right from Genesis 3? Let me just highlight the iniquity and sin, God's wrath, dust. That's from that as well. The idea of human dismay and shame and especially that language of all of our work being toil and labor, all of that comes right from the story in Genesis 3 that depicts our human experience from flourishing to labor and death. And then that language of flood, I'd suggest to you that comes from Noah's story as well from Genesis 6. Now the point is that all of what you and I experience as humans even those men and women who we think of having the happiest, longest, most productive and comfortable lives, even for them and for all of us, the reality that hangs over and supersedes everything else we experience as human beings is brokenness and limits that the fall has brought upon us. It's in our very DNA that we are broken and fallen. My mother is 88. I'm 48. She had me when she was 40. And she's a tough old bird. She has had a long life. She's had a hard go of things in recent years due to macular degeneration. She's completely blind in one eye and almost completely blind in the other. And that's particularly hard because she's been an artist all her life and she loves to create things. She's had a kidney infection for months now that's made her weak with a lot of blood loss. In May, she fell and broke her hip, and I spent several days in the hospital with her. And next week, my two sisters and I are gathering in the town in Illinois where we grew up, where my mother has lived since she was in college, and we're going to be sorting through what my mom has left on this earth as we prepare to move her in with my sister, who's in Georgia. And she's had a very long and productive and creative life with many joys and a lot of sadness and grief as well. But I'm really aware as her son, as I prepare to go to my childhood home and experience this, that even this long life of a good person is almost over. Her, her journey has run its course and almost everything that she was and that she experienced, almost all of it will be forgotten and turned to dust. 
It's hard not to feel overwhelmed. I know she's feeling it. It's hard not to feel overwhelmed by the sense of the futility of our lives. In fact, our psalm sounds a lot like another very powerful section of the Bible that you may or may not have read or ever or recently, and that's the book of Ecclesiastes. Do you know this book? It really faces the futility of life head on. In Ecclesiastes, we meet a man who's more powerful than Bourdain or Spade or anyone else you or I know. It's King Solomon. He's renowned worldwide in the ancient world for his wisdom and for his wealth. He has everything you and I could want. And when he looks over it all, he doesn't find happiness, but he finds despair and futility and an unshakable sense of meaninglessness. And it's incredibly discouraging to let these words of the psalm sink in. No matter how awesome your vacation is, it ends. No matter how healthy you are based on all the sacrifices you've made in in avoiding chocolate cake and exercising faithfully, you're still going to get sick and die. No matter how rich and successful you are in building a business, it cannot buy you another hour after your last breath. And in 50 years, 100 years, hardly anyone will remember your name, let alone know you personally. Unless you have so much money, you put your name on a building down here at Rollins or something, right? But even then, no one's going to know you. We already have hints of this bitter pill woven into our best experiences. All good things come to an end. And even in those rare moments when everything is perfect, as soon as you become aware that it's perfect, it ruins it. Wow. Thanks a lot, Pennington. Really glad we had you come today. Really glad I came to church this morning. I was really discouraged, and this is a big help. I thought we were in a series of flourishing. That's why I came, right? Well, in light of all this depressing message, how in the world could we ever find happiness? Our psalm could end right here. And in fact, the book of Ecclesiastes kind of does. Other places in Scripture do. Ecclesiastes has a great verse that I often use when I perform funerals and would be appropriate here as well. It says, it's better to go to the house of mourning, that is sadness, than the house of feasting because it's the end of all people and the living take it to heart. So that could be a good message. We could just think about the sobriety and the futility of our lives and take that to heart. But thankfully... This Genesis 3 moment, this Ecclesiastes moment is not where our psalm ends. And the reason I think this psalm has a lot to say about happiness and human flourishing and why I chose to speak from this, really why I felt led to speak from this text today, is because after all this sobering reality of our limits and our powerlessness, our frailty, the futility of our lives, our lives full of toil and temporality, listen carefully to what Moses says at the end. Verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity or mercy on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice 
and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us and for as many years as we've seen evil. Let the work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord of our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. All of our psalm builds up to this beautiful turning point, this high point. And I think it's asking the question that I began with, how do we live well and how can we truly find happiness in light of this stark reality of what we've just seen in the previous verses? And the answer is found in a straightforward but profound truth. Rather than despair, when we look at the futility of my mother's life or my life or your, if you look at your own life or some other people you know, rather than despair, we need a heart of wisdom. And a heart of wisdom looks like the humility to see our own earthly lives honestly and soberly, but not let that lead us to despair, but from that place of sober reality to look up to our gracious, merciful, and powerful God. And we're told to, the prayer is, teach us to number our days, not in a despair like a, a, you know, every day you're clicking off, well, there's one more day before I die, not in that kind of thing, like the opposite of the, you know, Christmas things we used to do when we were a kid were how many more days till Christmas. We could have like a really macabre kind of opposite of that, well, one more day before I die. Not that, but in humble sobriety, in maturity. Return, O Lord, make us glad, let your favor be upon us. All of that language recognizes that it is God who is truly, it recognizes God is truly compassionate and powerful and gracious and wholehearted and glad to bless us, glad to pronounce words of flourishing over us. And that verse 17 is more of the same. The psalm doesn't end on a note of despair or look like the funny tombstone that just reads, I told you I was sick or something like that's the end of it. No, the psalm ends by looking upward to God with the hope that all of our work, even our work done in toil and labor, won't actually be futile and meaningless, but will be established and long-lasting and glorious precisely Because God is in us and in it. And friends, the one big thing that I want you to take away from today, that I hope will stick with you, can be summed up in these words. Human flourishing in a fallen world can happen when we intentionally satisfy ourselves in God every day. And let me say that again. Human flourishing in a fallen world can happen, but only when we intentionally satisfy ourselves in God every day. Verse 14 again, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love so that we may rejoice and be glad in all of our days. In light of all that futility that the psalmist has just taken us through and reminded of, and that's an important aspect of a sober reality of ourselves and our lives, in light of that, we can hear these and pray and make reality these delightful words and truth. In light of the futility and disappointment of life, we can find true human flourishing by meditating on God's steadfast love, his chesed, his covenant faithfulness toward us. This means that whether we are right now 
experiencing exciting times in our lives or frustrating times, whether we're experiencing peace or anxiety, joy or pain, the one thing that can be constant in our lives is actually being satisfied in God. In our moments of weakness and insecurity and failure, morally and job, marriage, parenting, whatever, God's steadfast love for us in Christ means he is the same and his face is smiling upon us even in our failure. Whether we're in the prime of our youth, whether we are in the last days of our frailty, whether we're in moments of strength or in times when we're sick, in happy moments at the beginning of a vacation, or curled up with a great book, or out on the ocean fishing, or playing basketball with good friends, whatever it is for you, God's consistency, his strength, his trustworthiness, his beauty, his goodness, his power can give us every good thing to be received, not as meaningless, not leading us to despair, but as the goodness of true, peaceful happiness. You see, the reason my work and your work and our lives feel like toil, and the reason we hate and rebel in our bones against verses 3 to 11 that we just read is that you and I were made for something more. We were made for satisfaction. We were made for eternity. We were made for flourishing. If that were not the case, we would not feel the longing for it so much. Our only hope, friends, you see, that's a gift. That longing, that futility, that toil, that labor, that is a gift to invite us to meditate, to turn our directions on God's unfailing love. Because that habit of seeking God as our satisfaction will reframe our lives and transform what is a life of futility, it really is, to a life of flourishing. And in this, our psalm comes back around to the first two verses again. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, right after Anthony Bourdain's unexpected suicide, on some of the news reports, they showed a clip that has haunted me. It's a clip from one of his shows, probably Parts Unknown, where he's traveling around the world and discovering great meals. He's eating from a bowl on a busy Asian street, cars and mopeds going behind him. He picks up some noodles with his chopsticks, and literally this is what he said. Fellow travelers, this is what you want. This, holding the noodles, is the path to true happiness and wisdom. Those are haunting to hear after his suicide, knowing that as a fellow human traveler with you and me, he was seeking what we all long for, true happiness and wisdom, though he didn't find it. Now, there's just no diminishing, diminishing or anything negative about him. I love a great meal too. This was one of the gifts that we can recognize, in fact, common grace from him, from Bourdain, that he loved great meals and helped us find them. And that's a great thing. And in fact, a delicious meal 
is a pointer to God himself. It's a part of his creation. It's an invitation to know something beyond our own futility and smallness. That's nothing to dismiss or write off as unimportant. Good meals, and again, basketball games, movies, great novels, romantic relationships, friendships, they're all part of God's beauty in the world. But without, you see, satisfying ourselves in God, even the most beautiful things will become futile and not life-giving. But today, before we go to the Lord's Supper and then to our lunches, which are all both pointers to God, I want to invite you to pause and consider your life right now. Whether you are in a season when everything is going well and you feel strong and limitless and happy, whether you're in a season of weakness and confusion and anxiety, Today, there is hope for a real and lasting happiness only found through satisfaction in who God is. Our lives will always be marked by ups and downs, joys and pains, tears of laughter and of grief. But for the Christian, flourishing is possible in a fallen world, not by acting like there's not really suffering, nor by acting like everything is all okay. Those those. Two extremes are not the reality. Everything is always fine, like Lego. Everything is awesome all the time, right? Or, you know, there's no hope for any, you know, everything's futile. Neither of those are the reality for the Christian. Centering our lives on the center of gravity, who is God. And this could mean, I'm going to get really practical here, reading your Bible every day, memorizing Scripture, taking walks where you leave your phone in the car at home, and you pray and meditate, those little practices, friends, can transform you from being centered on either this unreality of everything's awesome or this unreality of everything's futile and recenter your life on God. And when you do, that will free you up and empower you to not experience life as futile, but experience life in all its fullness. And I'll confess this is a real struggle for me. I've noticed in this season of my life, it's not easy. Maybe that's where you are today. But I know this is true. And I invite you into the beautiful reality of finding life in God in a, flourish, in a fallen world by the invitation he gives you to come and satisfy yourself in his unchanging love. Let me pray for us. God, your word uh, will last when every one of us in this building, in this room, and hearing this is long gone. God, I'm aware that we're reading and talking about a psalm that was written thousands of years ago, and all the billions of people who have lived and died in between, we confess we are but dust. But God, we thank you that you've set a covenant love upon us. You care for us. You make your, the sun and the rain to shine upon us. And then we who have, are following Jesus that you've made alive, you have set this amazing, unlimited, meaningful love upon us. Please fill us with your spirit that we may taste and see that goodness again, no matter where we are today. And we pray these things in Jesus' powerful name.
Amen.